Well, we're, we're excited to, uh, to, jo- to welcome you into our uh, study of 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, we've been exploring what does it look like to live as God's people who are in exile in this world. Last week, we looked at part of that calling is to live as a priest of holy nations, to proclaim the excellencies of our God. And then further into the passage, we see that we're called to honorable conduct before our neighbors who don't know Christ, that God may be glorified through that. And so this week, we're going to be looking at what does it look like to proclaim God's excellencies? What does it look like to demonstrate honorable conduct in our role as citizens who submit to the governing authorities of our land? So with this in mind, I invite you to please follow along with me as we read from Scripture this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that out of your love, you've given us your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can indeed be called your people. And through the challenges of living in exile, we know that you are with us, you've spoken and that you care deeply for us. We see this ultimately in your son, Jesus. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that by your spirit, by your grace, by your kindness, that you would transform us, Lord, to be people who reflect the goodness of our King Jesus as we show respect and honor to our neighbors and to those who govern over us with authority. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, over the years, there's a movie I've enjoyed watching called School of Rock. And it tells the story of a washed-up rock and roll musician. He's been kicked out of his band. He's out of a job. All of his, his dreams and aspirations of musical greatness have been crushed. And so he's turning to the next chapter, and he actually lies his way into a job as a substitute teacher at, an elementary, at a private elementary school. And one of the mornings, he's standing in front of his class, and he's, he's ranting to his students about all the frustrations he's experiencing in life, about all of his crushed dreams and his fallen aspirations. And he says, but you know what? There's someone to blame for all these frustrations that I'm experiencing. There's someone to blame, and you know who it is? It's the man. The man's to blame. And someone said, who's the man? He goes, oh, you don't know the man? The man's everywhere. He goes, the man's in the White House? The man's down the hall in the principal's office? The man is occupying all of the fundamental structures of our society. And you know what the proper response to the man is who seems to be the root of all our troubles? We've got to stick it to the man. And so he teaches these students to stick it to the man by helping them figure out ways that they can show blatant disrespect through verbal assaults on their teachers. And he shows them how to stick it to the man by writing rock and roll songs and singing them that that, uh, that show blatant disrespect and disregard for the governing authorities as they kick, kick over desks in their rage. And we've all experienced frustration with what School of Rock would call the man. Some of us have experienced frustration because we hold valid religious convictions that are rooted in the Bible, and we're frustrated when we have to live in a world where there are policies that directly contradict those biblical principles. 
We get that. Some of us are frustrated from personal experience, where you've had to wade through the suffocating jungle of bureaucratic red tape to get what seems like the most simple and straightforward of tasks completed. And others have simply adopted the philosophy of a country song that was popular when I was growing up that basically says this, ain't nobody gonna tell me what to do. We've all experienced frustration with the man. And whatever the source of our frustration, we've all experienced the desire to stick it to the man's school of rock style. And we might not take up a guitar with a rock and roll song, but maybe we take up our smartphone and we stick it to the man on Facebook or on Instagram or in a text string that we're involved in. For others, it may be through the subtle disregard for government rules and regulations in our professional lives that we just quite frankly find inconvenient and unnecessary. But whatever expression this finds in our lives, Peter's calling us to a different path. While the crowds of society clamor to stick it to the man, he calls us to be subject to the king. And if you look in verse 13, it's very clear. Look with me there. He says this, be subject. It's the first command in this passage, and it's very straightforward. Be obedient. Demonstrate subordinate behavior. And to who will we go forward in this? To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So I want to pause just for a second. And I want to say, get it very clear in our minds what, what Peter is not saying here. He's not saying that the government has a blank check to write any policy or give any order that they want to and expect for Christians to follow it. That's not what he's saying. And we know that this is true from the rest of Scripture. In the book of Daniel, we celebrate Daniel's civil disobedience because he refused to worship the Babylonian Empire because God calls us to worship God and to worship God alone. And we see it throughout the rest of Christian history. We celebrate and look to men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who resisted the evil of the Nazis in World War II. We show respect and honor to men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who opposed the wickedness of white supremacy during the civil rights movement here in our own country. The list could go on and on and on. And Peter himself, the author of this letter, in the book of Acts, if you look there, there is a moment when he is told by the authorities, don't preach the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter looks at them and says, I can't do that. I have to obey God in this case, not man. So there is a biblical ground for civil disobedience, and it's important for us to keep these truths in mind as we read a passage like this. But that's not Peter's focus this morning. Peter's focus isn't on civil disobedience, and so we want to understand what he's not saying so we can see with crystal clear clarity what he is saying. And he's saying that as long as we're not being ordered to break the commandments of God, we're to be subject to the government's authority over our daily lives. And this command makes a lot of sense because God is a God of order. We see that order is rooted in the very being and nature of God. In our understanding of biblical doctrine, which is expressed in the Westminster Standards, we see that there is order. There's, there's order among the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Order is rooted in the very nature of God. And we see that order expressed in the way he orders our human relationships among one another. And this takes the form of government. In Romans 13, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? 
for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And we see that throughout history, God has worked through all kinds of governments. Governments that profess his name and governments that would like to have nothing to do with the name of Jesus. We look at Cyrus, the emperor of the Persian Empire, when the Israelites were in exile. And if you look in the book of Isaiah, this is what God says about Cyrus, a non-Christian, a non-God-fearing emperor. He says this, he, Cyrus, is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. One commentator summarizes this all very neatly and concisely. He says, we submit ourselves for God's sake because we respect his ordering of our lives. We respect his ordering. We don't just respect it. We actually, we actually long for this ordering in our lives. It's something we desire. You see, it's rooted in God's nature, but it also reflects God's goodness. Look in verse 14. He says that governors are sent by him, the emperor, to do what? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Our hearts long for evil to be resisted and to be punished. And God meets this longing, this deep longing in our hearts, oftentimes through the governing authorities and the sword that the, that the governor bears. In Acts chapter 23, the apostle Paul himself was a benefactor of the governing authorities who were resisting evil. Because there was a plot to murder Paul and to take his life away. And so as he was on his way to continue proclaiming the gospel, he was actually surrounded by a group of Roman soldiers who had swords and spears and who were there to protect him from wicked men who would murder him and take his life without authorization. Nobel Prize winning author William Golding expresses this very clearly for us in his famous novel, The Lord of Lies. And in this, in this story, we see that there's a group of boys who have been stranded on a desert island. And as they're trying to figure out how are we going to do life together, we see that rather than coming together to love and to care and to love one another, they actually begin spiraling into this ever-deepening pit of anarchy. And they begin taking up spears and other weapons that they forge from materials that they find in the jungle, and they actually begin hunting one another down. And towards the end of the story, one of these boys is stumbling through the jungle. His, his pursuers are hot on his tail, and he's desperately seeking deliverance as he seeks to evade those who would take his life. And as he goes through the underbrush, he gets to the tree line, and he looks out, and he sees a government official walking along the beach, armed and investigating what's going on on this island. And he runs to the governing official and basically falls down at his feet and says, you know, this isn't a direct quote, but basically expresses, thank goodness, I'm delivered. You're going to protect me. I'm so glad you're here. And we love this kind of ending to a story because this is what we want. We hear stories about what's going on in places like El Salvador or in our own streets here in the United States where wicked men and women do evil against those who are innocent. And when we see the governing authorities step in to intervene and to exercise justice to restrain them and to actually punish them for their wickedness, we rejoice, and rightly so, because they're fulfilling one of the fundamental purposes that God has given them as governing authorities, to punish wickedness. On the other hand, we praise him and we rejoice when projects go forward that shelter orphans, that care for widows, that nurture human flourishing in the form of schools and the arts 
and music and all other sorts of things that are good in this world. And we give thanks when governments uphold those and support them and encourage them. Because again, they're fulfilling a fundamental purpose of their role in government. Praise that which is good. And we've all experienced this, but we also have experienced times where the government doesn't seem like they're coming ashore to actually help with the good. Sometimes it feels like they're coming ashore to, to crush Christianity. Peter understood this. If you look throughout this letter, he says, I'm writing to you from Babylon. Babylon was another way of, of talking about Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. And Rome was a place that oftentimes was at direct odds with Christianity. One of the governors sent by the emperor, you've heard of him, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate murdered Jesus Christ, who he believed to be innocent, and he let him be killed anyway. Later on, Peter, again, the author of this very letter, we believe he was, he was murdered by one of the Roman emperors, by Nero. And many Christians were persecuted because they would not participate in the religious idolatrous cults of the governing Roman authorities throughout history. And so in Acts 4, again, Peter, he quotes from Psalm 2, and he expresses the concern about, well, what about when governments are not punishing evil and, and upholding good? What, what about the times when governments are actually perpetrating evil? What then? And in Psalm 2, he says, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. This prayer is right after he was commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. And he goes on to reflect how this is true in his own life. He says this, in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. But then listen to what he says next. This might be surprising. He says, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? God is always in control, and he's always working in accordance with his sovereign plan. And in this case, perhaps the worst case of treachery in the history of the world, the murder of Jesus Christ, he was working even through that to open the door of salvation to mankind. God was at work. He's in control even in the midst of treachery because he is the king over all other kings. And friends, this is ultimately why we are subject to the king, lowercase, the rulers and the governing authorities, because we are servants of the king, all capital letters. In verse 13 again, it says, be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, for this is the will of God. And this matters to us. When we hear Peter talking about the will of God, it matters to us. Because in verse 16, he goes on to say, we're to be living as servants of God. As his servants, we have a direct interest in obeying his will. And why is it God's will that his servants live in submission to the governing authorities? Why? What's the purpose? How is this part of his plan? He goes on to tell us in verse 15, he says, by doing good, by submitting to the authorities, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, what Peter's saying here is there are people who are going to assault the name of Jesus and who are going to assault 
his church. And this was very true in the Roman Emperor, where Christians were often seen as dangerous enemies of the state because they would not participate in some of the idolatrous acts of loyalty that was required of citizens of Rome. But this is not God's will that Christianity should be slandered. Rather, it's his will that people should see Christians' honorable conduct and glorify him as a result and to hear his excellencies proclaimed. And so Peter's saying, you can't go along with the idolatry. You've got to obey God. You cannot break his commandments. And as much as you are able to, within those guidelines, live as law-abiding citizens. Because then, ignorance will be silenced, and people will see the excellencies of God proclaimed in their lives, and give glory to him as a result. And you might wonder, well, what could this look like today in our society, where oftentimes Christians are viewed with suspicion? We're viewed with suspicion perhaps because we're seen as ignorant or unintelligent. Perhaps we're seen as backwards bigots who are out to get you. The list could go on. I'm sure you've heard various reasons why Christians are looked askance at. But years ago, I heard the story of a, of a Christian man who was working in a nonprofit organization. And the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, decided that they were going to conduct an audit on his nonprofit because they were concerned that he had not been honest about what kind of tax category he should be operating under. And they were concerned that he was basically, you know, dodging tax dollars that he was supposed to be paying. And they came in guns blazing. They came in and basically said, we are going to threaten you professionally by doing this investigation. And if it turns out it's true that you are being dishonest, we're going to publish it in your local newspaper and humiliate you in front of all of your neighbors. And when we're done with that, we're going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. And this could not have come at a worse time in this man's life. You see, his father had just recently passed away, and his mother was expected to follow soon thereafter. Can you imagine the temptations he must have felt, the rage he must have felt in those moments? The rage to, to fire back with scathing words of insult and retaliation because he was being honest. Or you can imagine the temptation he might have felt or that we might have felt in a situation like that to basically slow roll the process and try to make it as miserable as possible for the people that were conducting the investigation. Can you imagine that? But this wasn't how the man responded. Rather, taking up verse 1 in, in chapter 2, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And that's what this man did. He put away malice, he put away slander, and he treated them with respect. Over the long weeks that followed, he patiently provided all the paperwork that was requested without reservation. And he didn't simply, and when he was interviewed by the IRS agents, he treated him with dignity, and he treated him with kindness. Now, let me make it clear, he didn't simply roll over. He was operating under the proper tax category. They were wrong in this situation, and they needed to be corrected. And he was good to do that. He was good to push back, but he did it in a way that was subject to the governing authorities, that was cooperating with their process, and that was doing it with dignity and respect all throughout. And listen to how that story ended. On the last day of the investigation, they had sent a representative agent there to speak with him. 
And as they were coming to a close, it, it seemed like everything was going to be good to go. It was going to be cleared. No need to publish them in the newspaper. No need to prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. And the IRS agent, he paused, and he asked a very pastoral question of this Christian man. He said, he gave him a scenario of deep personal pain that a person might be going through, deep woundedness. And he said, how would you walk with a person through a situation like this? And the man wasn't quite sure if, if this was a challenging question, as if to say, well, you look good on paper. Let's see how you do in practice. He wasn't sure. But as he began to, to then share the gospel of Jesus and to explain how Jesus meets us in our deepest moments of pain. Jesus is the one who comes and binds up our wounds and heals us. Jesus is the one who cares about you. So much that he gave his life for you. As he began to explain the gospel, it became very clear that this was a very personal question from this man's life. And as you heard more and more and more, his eyes began to fill with tears. And when he left that day, he could say, not only are Christians honorable, not only are they operating within the parameters of our governing system, I've actually heard today proclaimed the excellencies of God through his son, Jesus Christ, who meets us in deep pain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, y'all. And how might this play out in our lives? When you've been on the phone with the government health care system for two hours, and you've been through 14 menus, and you think you're about to get through to somebody, and click. You've got to start all over again. When the next representative agent comes on the line, can you put away malice? Treat them with kindness? And with respect, I'll be the first to admit I haven't done that very well. <laughs> or students, when you're talking with your friends in the hallways at your school, and they begin to slander teachers who maybe, maybe are not your favorite teachers. Maybe they haven't treated you fairly. Maybe they haven't treated you kindly. But they are sent by the government, by the Board of Education. Can you put away slander and treat them with respect in those moments? Well, for all of us, when we find ourselves in a, in a conversation about the political culture in our land, a culture which is at many times rotten and awful, and when you have friends who are spitting the last names of public officials out of their mouths like it's acid or poison, in those moments, can we put away malice? In those moments, can we actually use the title of president or governor or the honorable fill in the blank, in conjunction with their last name, and treat them with respect, even when we are rightly opposed, rightly opposed to policies that are contrary to Scripture or to moral practices that should never be found anywhere in society. Can we put away malice in those moments? And above all, can we pray that the government would fulfill the calling that God is giving them as we wait for the rule, the perfect rule of our ultimate king, Jesus, who is going to return and put all these things away. We ask, what would it look like? But as we ask that question, we need to ask another question that's just as important. It's, how can this become a reality 
How could we possibly do these things? We know how hard it is when we're on the phone and we've had that two-hour wait. We know how difficult it is when we got our blood up because we've heard an outrageous story about someone who's perpetrated wickedness against another person or who's been cheating people. It's really hard in those moments to do that, to put away malice and slander. And I bet there's not a single, I know there's not a single person in this room that could do that on their own willpower. It's not possible. It's not possible unless we have help. And we have that help. We see it in verse 16. Look with me there. He says, live as people who are free. Peter's calling us basically to be who we are. We are free people. And what kind of freedom is he talking about? Well, he goes on to, de- to define that. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, he's saying your freedom is not a license to sin or to rebel or to stick it to the man however you want to. Rather, your freedom is freedom to serve God. And in this case, freedom to submit to the governing authorities. And this is true throughout the Bible. This is the Christian understanding of what freedom really is. In Romans 6, it says this, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. How? Having been set free from sin. It's freedom from the power of sin and freedom to obey God's commandments. That's the freedom he's talking about. And we are free because Christ has ransomed us from sin. If we look further in our passage here this morning, in verse 24, it says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed and set free to obey the commandments of God. It's Jesus, the King, who sits enthroned with all things under his authority, who, serve, who we serve, who heals us, who liberates us from the disorder of sin and enables us to live in accordance with these commandments that we see here in 1 Peter. And I'll never forget the testimony of a friend telling of how he was brought to faith in Jesus. You see, he, he talks about how he had lived a disordered life from as early as he could remember. He'd experienced the deep pain and the deep sorrow of, of disorder in a home that had a lot of things that were messed up. And this disorder continued into his, his days, his wild days in college. And then one day, he heard about the gospel of Jesus. He heard about how Jesus actually brings order to your life. And he says, I want that. I want that order. Because I've lived in this disordered life, and it's miserable. I'm tired of sin that tosses me about, and I want the peace and the order and the shalom that only Jesus can provide. It's majestic, and I want to live under his majestic rule. And so, y'all, it's Jesus, the king, all caps, three exclamation marks, full stop, the king over all kings who makes this possible. He orders our lives and gives us power and desire to submit to the order of the governing authorities. He orders our lives and gives us the power and the desire to live as servants of God. And, it's po- and he gives us the power to show God's goodness in all of our relationships so that verse 17 can actually become a reality in our lives so that we can actually honor everyone, we can love the brotherhood, we can fear God, and we can honor the emperor because we are loved and we are empowered by Jesus who then we serve as the king. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a God of order, that you are a God of justice. You are God 
who brings peace to our lives. We thank you that it's because of your son, Jesus, who is the king of all creation, came and stood in our place and suffered on the cross and set us free from slavery to sin so that we would be able to obey you. Give us wisdom, Lord, to discern how we can be good citizens in our land, how we can obey the governing authorities over us, and how through that we can demonstrate honorable conduct and proclaim your excellencies so that you may be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.